we didn't understand what we were about to get into. But the cave was just so intriguing to me. I just wanted to get in there. And all you see is black all around you, this huge room, but you got to keep going down even farther. You realize then there's absolutely no way back. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making a donation today. Go online to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. That's tetoncountysar.org slash donate. If you like listening to The Fine Line, consider sharing this podcast with a friend. Spencer and Jessica Christiansen knew once they rappelled into the Darby Canyon Ice Cave, they couldn't turn back. Spencer had done what he could to research the route, but the maze-like caves are mostly unmapped and ever-changing. As clues pulled them in misleading directions, the couple found themselves trapped underground for two mentally and physically grueling days in August of 2018. Spencer Christiansen, I now live in Idaho Falls, Idaho. I was from American Falls, Idaho. Jessica Christiansen, I am from Idaho Falls. I am 24. Yesterday was six years Yesterday was six years together. Yeah. Married for two years. I was researching. I, I jumped online, and the only thing I could find for the, the ice cave itself was those BYU guys that got stuck because of the ice wall. And I was like, well, we're not going to have to deal with that. We're going to go in the hottest time of year. I went to a couple sports stores to try to find the maps of the cave. We called over to Teton County, and there was nothing. So we were like, well, it can't be that bad then. That's what our my assumption was, not, not my wife's. So I never rock climbed before I met Spencer. He actually pushed me through that fear, and that was one of the scariest things I thought I had ever been through. He pushed me into cliff diving into water. We've been through a lot of crazy things. I was scared just because I hadn't been in a cave in a long time and I knew how tight those spots can actually get. And I also knew there was no way back. I think I was scared of not having the ability to go back more than anything else. When I was a lot younger, a lot more uh, free-spirited, I guess, high school friends and full trust in them. They took me to random caves. A few we went into that had missionary writing on the walls from like 1820s, but they got really tight and there was actually a spot where I hit my head and there was a lot of blood and a lot of blurriness. You know, you get scared in that kind of situation, you're gonna get stuck in this cave. And so I think that kind of triggered my fear of caves from that point on. Spencer makes me push my limits. I love him for it. Our adventures are always amazing. I always start out terrified and up happy in the end, and then I get addicted every time. So there were some tears. <laughs> I definitely didn't want to go in. We met my parents in Pocatello, which is the halfway point between us and them. Dropped the daughter off with the grandparents and... Stressed where we were going to them again so that they knew our exact location just in case. I told them a certain time I would call them the next day. We actually told quite a few people because I was nervous and we're pretty big on safety. There was still dew on the on the leaves when we hit the trailheads. The wind cave is huge. 
walking on the trail i mean you can see that a long ways off and it's just gorgeous anyway we headed up the shelf rock and shelf climb was pretty tough it was very scary one wrong step and you would have just slid all the way down and it was pretty high up there yeah, that's the normal approach. It's not signed at all. I think it's almost seven miles. It's a lot farther than you think. You've done almost a half a day hike in terms of calories and energy before you've even gone in. It's tough. I'm Ed Fries, SAR volunteer for 11 years. I've been through four or five times, all either training or rescues. I enjoy going through it, so <laughs> it, it is kind of recreational. <laughs> Some people really don't like it on the team, but I actually enjoy it. We get up there after climbing that shelfy last scramble. Just like you said, that takes so much energy out of you by, by the time you're up there anyway. We enter the cave, we're looking around, and we see a little sign that says, you know, you need your climbing equipment. Anyway, we start climbing around, and there's ice, there's water everywhere, and the walls of the cave are just sparkling. It's just gorgeous. This is kind of funny. We were trying at this point not to get our feet wet. <laughs> anyway, so we're trying our best to stay out of the water and we get to this point where it's all ice and we start walk over the ice and we keep walking and through the little tunnel until we see the ice drops down through the, the ice slide. And at that point we were, we started debating back and forth. Okay, what do you really want to do? Do you want to, do you want to backtrack or we want to go back down or do you want to, we have the rock climbing equipment, we have all of our stuff. Do you want to just go for it? I want to go for it. That's what I said. I want to go for it. This is beautiful. This is amazing. We should really take advantage of this because this is gorgeous. We have our helmets. We have our equipment. We're, we have warm clothes. We have rock climbing experience. We talked about it all and we're like, I think we can make it. I've got a lighter. We can test the air, that kind of thing. And all the information that we've received is that it's going to be a nice four hour, maybe six hour trip, <laughs> you know? And so we've done a heck of a lot worse than this. Let's get going. This is going to be fun. We didn't understand at that point what, what we were about to get into, but the cave was just so intriguing to me. I just wanted to get in there. It gets very serious very quickly. What people think of is the big drop. There's a 50-foot vertical wrap over the edge, but there's actually two short repels before that. And if you pull your rope on either one of those and you don't have crampons and an ice axe, which most people don't bring an ice axe, there's just no way to get back up. The second short wrap if you you know were to make a mistake, you would just keep going over the 50-footer. Someone we met along the way on the trail said, some people use their equipment, but it's not really necessary. You can sit down and slide down if you want. A lot of people will sit and slide. Well, we now know that if you were to sit down and slide all the way through, you would go right to your death. Please use your equipment wisely. <laughs> Do not sit and slide. It's definitely not a slide. After that first repel... The second repel, is, it starts looking more like a waterfall, a frozen waterfall. If you move wrong, your feet are going to slide out from under you because you're sliding down ice. It's technical, but at the same time, we handled that just fine. It wasn't until that third repel that you really get a sense of how amazing this cave really is, for one, but also how much of a daunting task you're about to get into. I tried to peek over the edge, but it's still all ice, and it is a frozen waterfall over a cliff. And on the wall, there's some bolts. I connected myself to the wall because I wanted to get a good grand picture of what we we're about to repel over. Scooted out a little bit from up top. It was huge. It looked ginormous. And I just couldn't believe the size of this cave at that point. I was like, this is much bigger than what we thought. But we couldn't really quite see the bottom. So what we did is I tossed my rope 
to see if we can hear the rope smack the ground and what we were going to get from that. Then I tested the weight of the rope to see if we even hit the bottom. And luckily enough, I brought along enough rope to where, yeah, we hit the bottom. We're okay. So I went first and I don't know what I'm getting myself into. And at first you have, you have the wall to hold on to. The wall's right in front of you. You can push off of it as you're going down. And then all of a sudden the wall's not there anymore and you're just dangling. And all you see is black all around you, just this huge room but you got to keep going down even farther. You realize then there's absolutely no way back. It's so cold. And at that point is where we hit the smallest point we had to go through. And so you don't see a way forward. It's a ginormous room and the landing is ice. All you're looking with is one tiny little headlamp. You can't see any detail from up 50 feet in the air. You're looking around trying to find which direction you have to go because in reality you don't know until you dangle your butt over the edge <laughs> so when you hit the ice you're still repelling but you're now sliding down more into the deep dark depths of this cave and at that point we were even thinking well we don't know the next corridor so we i try to hit the brakes on the rappel to take a look around do we have to go left do we have to go right we don't know yet so she unhooked her rappel and I zipped down the rappel and realized, well, this is a big, big room. Where do we got to go? And at that point, we both decided, let's just make this easier. Let's figure out where the air is coming from. We know it's a wind cave. We know the air is traveling through. So we lit a, we lit our lighter and that was obvious. It comes from this direction. We headed straight toward the proper tunnel. But we finally came across some writing, the only writing, the only markings in the whole cave to direct us into this tiny little hole. <laughs> and that's when my adrenaline started going. I was like, oh, this is this is pretty small. I'm I'm not a I'm not a huge guy, but I'm definitely not that small. <laughs> my scariest part of the whole dang trip was that stinking small little corridor. And some of the guys that came down there, they're bigger than I am. How the <laughs> heck did you guys get through that? I I got stuck because I was dumb and had my arms in the wrong spot. That was some intense stuff. And I've been through some tight corridors before. I was realistically, righteously scared for what was about to take place. That's what, that's why I'm I'm swiveling in my chair because I get going on this on this topic, and this is the this is the intense part for me. This is like oh, this is the scariest part of the whole dang trip. I'm not a very claustrophobic type of guy. I don't really get in that situation very often. I've never really had a trouble with it. But as we peeked our head into this tunnel, yeah, that initial first squeeze is probably twenty twenty five feet. Uh. I'll only disagree with one thing you've said so far. Yeah. You're a pretty big guy. And and, and that's a pretty small squeeze. Well, thank you. I think that's probably the tightest one, but there's three others that are twisting. And so for us, the twisting ones are where we can't get a litter through. And so when our SAR mind goes to work, we look at that first one and I think, well, might be able, we can get a litter through there at least without a person in it. If you, for instance, had a broken leg or Mm -hmm. a broken hip, we'd put the patient in a litter Mm -hmm. and strap them in. And that makes it easier for us to carry the person. The other squeezes, you can't get a litter through because of the turns. Yeah. She actually (laughs) had no trouble. She just, oh yeah, it goes out through here. Let's come on through. It opened up to a big room, but then I had to go back and forth a couple of times. Spencer's too big. He couldn't take our rope. He couldn't take either one of our packs. He could, he even had to take off his jacket. My knees hurt by the end of that. That was pretty tight, even for me. And so to have a big man like Spencer go through, yeah, he was, he was scared and I was scared, but this was the point where I had to keep calm and talk him through it because he was going to be the one that was going to end up stuck here. Truth be told, I did get stuck. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to act tough by any means because I crawled through there. 
And there was a point at the very end of this tight squeeze where I had to twist sideways to try to wedge a shoulder up in a crack to squeeze through the tightest part. As I try to wedge my shoulder up there and kick off the walls to squeeze through this tiny thing, feeling like toothpaste through a tube, my shoulders just couldn't squeeze through at the time. Tried three or four different times, and each time I wedged myself up in there, I felt the wedge, I felt the clench, and I felt myself almost getting stuck. Immediately heart thumping, adrenaline rushing. I was sweating, but I was freezing because it was cold down there. So I backed out a couple times, and I said, hey, you got to start digging some rocks out. I just don't have enough. I don't have enough room. Jess turns around and she comes down there and starts lit. We're both digging rocks and trying to separate some space just to get my arms up in there to squeeze through. And that actually worked. All we did, we, we probably dug only about an inch, an inch and a half, maybe just pushed. And I had, I had scratches on my shoulders and on my sides from squeezing through that tiny little thing. That was a relief. It took me probably a good 15 minutes just breathing trying to stay calm, get my composure back before we kept moving from that spot. During the course of the rescue, Jessica did mention to me, well, it, it started out a little rough. I, I did have to get Spencer through that initial tight place. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> and she sounded pretty confident, like it was okay for me, but he was a little, he was in a yeah. little jam there. <laughs> That's accurate. That's very accurate. Yep. After that comes the scariest part for me, the whole cave. So it, it opens up to this short, but very big room. It's, it's short. You can't stand up all the way. And I hate that. After you squeeze through this tiny cave, you want to be able to stand up straight. And I just couldn't. And there was so many different ways that you could have gone, but we couldn't quite find the way out at that point. And so we just had to keep searching until we found this spot that you're questioning everything the entire time. And so I think that was the scariest part for me where there was no for sure. We looked for bolts the whole time to try to show us the way to go. And there was nothing. We couldn't find any markings. We couldn't find any trash. As I think about it now, the thing that really could have been detrimental in the end was how long that the search to each exit was. We had to go back and forth of each ginormous room that we were in. And these, this is a ginormous cave. So there's multiple different areas that you think might lead to an exit or a different hole that might be some place so you got to squeeze through to get out. So you don't really know. And so the only true blue way that we knew at this point was let's test some air. Let's find out where the airflow was going. Let's look for any tracks, any and obvious signs of people moving through this. But you're on your hands and knees crawling through right out of you, right after you get out of that tight squeeze. And so that was very difficult to keep calm and just realize you got to keep going. But this is at the still the very beginning of the cave. It's all a big guessing game. So I think that constantly keeps you on edge. Yeah, we had a really good dialogue going on. And that's what I think really helped us. As we got out of that really tight spot, we did a really good job voicing our opinions, analyzing everything and realizing, hey, that corridor that looks like it could go somewhere doesn't have any airflow through it. We can feel that. We can see that. You bust out the flashlight, you're, you're looking through your, your headlamp, and so you see just mist floating through the air. You can kind of gather which way the air is, is flowing. And as you head that way, you're able to stand up finally. And then all of a sudden you hit a wall, and you think, well, maybe I'm wrong. You know, But then we start seeing holes in the wall that really look tight and a bunch of boulders. So we decide, okay, well, the air is flowing through here. We know we're going the general direction. So let's at least take a look. You know, let's leave the equipment down here at the bottom first. Let's get a good gander of where we're going. And Jess is smaller. So I'm like, you know what? Let's just keep this routine going. 
And so she climbed up first and started looking through. And you're squeezing in between boulders. It's just very tight spots. But Jess scooted on up there. Honestly, she said over and over again, I don't know if this is the right way. And I said, well, I, I don't see a different way. There's no other way that the air is flowing. This has to be the right direction. We didn't know. And so we kept ascending up, and that made the most sense because of the airflow. Uh, had Jess climb up a little further, and she saw that it did open up further. So we decided that was the way to go. So we came back down, grabbed the equipment, and kept on going. As soon as it, we got to the top of this climb and scramble through boulders, the tunnel actually went the opposite direction. It pulled back the other way that we were going, and that was concerning because we knew from just general direction, we got to be heading west, and the tunnel turned back east, and so that was really concerning. I didn't know whether we were getting ourselves into a maze or if we were going to be able to find our way out. As long as we were moving, I don't think we were too concerned. As long as we kept going, I knew, I told my mom I'd call her at midnight that night, so I knew we had a time frame that I had to get out or she was going to call search and rescue even if we were fine and still moving. We didn't really look at the time very much. We didn't think we were in trouble until we stopped. It was probably, I'd say probably 12 hours into it <laughs> is, be, is the first time that we really started realizing, yeah, we might be in a little bit of trouble here. We better figure some things out. I know that when we decided to stop and make a fire, it was midnight because I thought, well, I haven't called my mom yet, so she's going to be calling search and rescue here pretty soon. We didn't think we were lost at this point. We were just trying to eat some more food and warm up. Our fingers were completely numb. So you walk through this whole creek the whole time. You're soaked. Yeah. And it is like a maze, like you guys say. There's so many twists and turns, and especially in that waterfall room. Mm -hmm. has a huge waterfall in it, and and it's just flooded in there. And we walked back and forth. We walked clear back in that back corridor mm -hmm. where we saw footprints. We don't know how old they were. They could have been there for a while, actually, but they looked fresh to us. And we walked clear back there and got completely soaked, drenched head to toe because we thought that was the way out. And it turns out we had just missed a turn. Yeah, at this point, it was kind of like a maze because to get out, you actually have to rappel down next to where the waterfall drops into. And from there, you're following the river. At this point, we were trying to figure out the next place to go. And the waterfall is kind of hidden anyway, but you kind of come through and it opens up into different corridors. So we wanted to make sure we're going the right direction. But any waterfall starts pushing off air. And so at that point, we knew that our air testing idea might not be 100% accurate because of how much water was flowing through this area. So we explored all the different corridors, all the different areas, and that took, I don't know, another 30 minutes. And then we found, luckily enough, we found a, a bit of webbing, a uh, bit of rock climbing, uh, repelling stuff with a bolt on it that was wrapped around a rock. We remembered the YouTube video of a, a different group going through that, oh yeah, that guy was down this crack. I recognized the, the spot that we used that bolt and we repelled right where the waterfall was dropping into. So we dropped in this crevice. Once you land there, you're, you're looking at this beautiful waterfall in the middle of, the, of this beautiful cave. So we stopped, took a picture. It was kind of fun. So beautiful. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And then from there, we knew that we were just going to follow the river. The river cuts through this cave and zigzags back and forth. And you, and you don't really, you know, humans don't really quite fit very well in that cave. So you have to kind of duck and slide through. And you're going down hallways that zigzag back and forth and back and forth for what felt 
like miles walking through the water. So our feet are numb before we ever hit this spot anyway, because it's cold and we're trekking through water anyway. That narrow hallway, that zigzag back and forth, we felt we went through just hours and hours of that. I think we did. A constant descent. (laughs) We kept saying, we've got to be there soon. This has got to be it. This has got to be Crotch Lake that we were looking for. You know, when we didn't think that this thing was as long as it was, and it took us forever. And so we thought, this has got to be Crotch Lake. We've got to be close to the end. No, we followed that river forever until we got to the spot where we got stuck. This is one of my problems with what's on YouTube is is that there's a couple of videos on YouTube. And in particular, there's a longer one that's over an hour by eight people. They're completely unsafe. Three of them have no helmets. They're all wearing jeans and cotton. But nowhere in that video does it say that the normal route is through a creek for an hour and a half. Yeah, we didn't know Before that. you get to the lake, before you get up to your waist. And so you've already been in 38 degree water with your feet and your ankles for, you know, for over an hour, hour and a half. You can't be anything but cold unless, unless you know that and you're dressed for it. And if you don't know that, you won't be dressed for it. We didn't know that. We kept saying over and over again, hey, we know there's a river that's coming out of the out of the wind cave, so we got to be heading the right direction. Let's keep following the river. And there was a part even where Jess had turned to the right and was heading, the, the boulders kind of made it look as if there was a trail that led up to, to a higher elevation. And she kind of started climbing up, and I kept started going down the river a little bit. And so we realized we're getting a little bit separated, so we stopped and started yelling back and forth and... We both decided, you're right, there's a river that's going down. The river goes through. We got to follow the river. So we had Jess climb back down and come uh, with me down the down the river. But that took so stinking long. We both were so concerned that maybe there was a secret passage that led out of the wind cave that we somehow missed. That was a constant thought in our head. Uh, did we go too far? Uh, is this going to turn into a maze? What are we going to do? But logic and a calm head, we both decided, yes, there's wind coming at our face. There's always been wind here. The water is going down. Those are the only two clues that we possibly could have that was going to lead us the right direction. But the spot we got lost was at the end of the river. Well, it wasn't the end, but the river really went under uh, another small cave almost. There's There's a hallway that you're following a river. This river opens up, but yet the cave narrows down. So you have to get on your hands and knees, but you're realizing the room is getting wider and wider and there's more water. At this point, we are just exhausted. We're cold, we're hurting basically. And as we're looking around, we're trying to find any sort of evidence of human that has been through there. And I remember being on my hands and knees and looking around, I see a rock that has a spray painted P-13. There's a spray painted on a rock down it's a there. Bucket. It was a bucket down there. Are you sure? Yep. Someone has spray painted some orange markers, and, and we don't know what they mean. Interesting. Or at least I don't know what they mean, and no one's ever told me. If we kept following the river, it looked as if we were just going to hit a wall, and we were going to get more soaked by exploring the water. So I see this marker. We're like, hey, there's some, there's some evidence of humans. You know, this is good news. And there was some mud right there that had... Finger scratches. Somebody had been digging in the mud right there. So when we knew where we were, at least someone had been there at some point. This was a good place to just stop, start a fire, and eat some food and try to get our wits, you know, about us. 
So we crawled up in there. We It opened up to a room where we were able to stand up. This room, as it opened up, we explored trying to find the next tunnel. We were freezing. We were starving at this point. We were just, well, maybe, okay, starving is a little dramatic, but we were hungry. We wanted depleted. to get, yeah, we mm. were depleted. We were shaking a little bit because of how cold we were already. At this point, my feet, I couldn't even feel my feet. I needed to kind of warm those up. I wanted to try to get my toes wiggling again. <laughs> as we explored this cave, we were looking for any dry spot because there was some mud there was some dirt and things around but it wasn't dirt it was all mud so there's constantly water dripping from the walls there's water underneath you the dirt is wet the rocks are wet there's Mm -hmm. water dripping from the ceiling everything people cannot grasp how wet it is down there The, the longer you're in there the colder you're getting we saw a rope a rock climbing rappelling actually saw two ropes that are dangling from the same location. And that was a big sigh of relief. That is evidence of somebody being down here recently. Somebody's been climbing. This is good news. Okay, so this is the spot that we're going to hang out. We're going to get warm. We're going to figure this out. We're going to eat some food. So we sat down, got our garbage together, built a fire, and started trying to warm up. So this rope that we see, it's going up into this hole, this waterfall. We had no strength to pull our own body weight up there. Although it had a rope, it was, what, probably 10 feet up in the air? Uh, it's, it's I had bigger to, than that. I, I mean, had to stand Phil, on you think? It was probably, what, 25, maybe 20 feet of a climb of mud and rock? <laughs> we tried that multiple times. We got soaked because it's a waterfall the whole time. We didn't have enough strength. We had gone all day on trail mix and jerky and, and the sandwiches we had for lunch before we even came in. We were depleted, we were tired, we were cold. So we tried to find the driest spot we could. We slept until about three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) On top of our rope, we tried to stay as dry as possible, but our rope was soaked. We both decided we're gonna explore this whole entire room. That's when I started realizing, hey, there's a lot of fingerprints down here next to the water. So I'm gonna kind of go shimmy out there a little bit. So I scooted in the water, got about waist high in the water. You actually have to sneak through a couple Um, rock overcrops, I'd say, where you have to bend down and get really far into the water. So I scooted along up until my waist. As I was looking around, there was no evidence that this direction was going to be the right way to go. And I didn't want to get more cold than I was. And I couldn't imagine that room going anywhere. To actually get out, it went all the way up to our necks. Well, to Jess's neck, my my chest. It Only because was... you had to bend down. There's rocks right above you. You had to really crouch down in that water down there. You can't see what's in front of you. We had no way to know if we were going to step over a rock and just be swimming in water and have it the current just take us. We didn't know what was next. We played it safe, and we thought the only way out was up that, that hole in the wall, basically. <laughs> As we made the fire, we were trying to pay attention which direction the smoke went. It circled through the hole where the rope came down. Some went the other direction toward the water and some went back up the tunnel where we just came out of. So at this point, we didn't really quite know, but the only evidence we could really go off of at that time was there's two ropes dangling out of this hole in the ceiling. Research that we did, there was a point when somebody said, you have about a 25 foot climb at the very end of the tunnel to get out. So we imagine that's about 25 feet. There's a hole up there and there's no evidence of anywhere else. So, hey, guess what? This has got to be the way out. That is the only thing that made sense. We had already been through waist high water up the up the creek a ways. So we thought we'd been through Crotch Lake, been in this so long that we just thought we were at the very, very end. 
Um, that's why we were so ambitious to get up this climb. But at first, we just made a fire out of our garbage to, to quickly get warm. To warm and, our fingertips to be able to hold onto the rock to pull us up yeah, this we, thing. Because we, we tried for a good three, maybe even four hours to climb this straight up with no energy. I, mean, I kept sending Jess up first, and, and that didn't work. So we tried using the rope that was dangling and had her climb up just the rope itself to try to grab onto the rock. That didn't work, so I tried it. I tried lead climbing. That didn't work. <laughs> I tried climbing the rope, and I'm too heavy, tired, and my fingers were so numb, it was really hard to hang on to anything. So that didn't work. Hours and hours of us trying to just ascend this stinking hole that we thought was the way out. It's past midnight. Somebody's hopefully called search and rescue. We need to figure out a way to warm up so we can get out of this place. We're shivering so bad. It was a time game. We didn't know when somebody called search and rescue or if they even had at the time. So what we started doing was we would do push-ups and we would do squats and move around here and there to try to get enough warmth before we were going to attempt that climb again. We first burnt our baseball hats, hats and gloves, gloves, spare gloves and that we brought. Try to make little fires just enough to do its job to get us mobile and warm. I took my shoes off, tried to get my toes working again. We tried to sleep, but as you're sleeping, we were soaked head to toe. None of the fires completely dried us. And so we tried to snuggle up to, to try to get body heat the best we could. But every time we drifted off just a little bit, you would wake up because you were shivering so badly and you would wake up way colder than you were when you fell asleep. We maybe got five minutes here, two minutes there, that kind of thing. Spencer was very cold. He got really wet because he went into that deep water trying to find the way out. And I was just listening to him breathe at this point, making sure he was, you know, not passing out or anything because we were so cold. We didn't just sit there and wait. We were constantly looking for a different way out. And we were constantly trying to use this rope, these two ropes. It was one green one and one yellow rope. But the more energy we poured into it, the less we had just to stay warm. We knew we were in trouble, but we needed to preserve what we had for energy and for strength because we thought in the end we have to be able to climb this thing and hopefully somebody's going to be here to help us. Well, at this point, we thought we were going to be smart by um, using the alarm on the walkie-talkies. And we had a whistle on the backpack. Their little clip has a little whistle on it. Every, I'd say, half hour... I would tell Jess to blow on the whistle three times and I would use my alarm and we would yell as loud as possible in the cave to kind of help anybody who's in the cave. Because even if there wasn't search and rescue, if there was somebody else going through, they would give us better odds. We would yell, we would scream, we would um, blow the whistle and we would set the alarm off on the walkie talkies to try to get any sort of help. There were times where we'd sit down and I'd turn my phone on to try to ping 911 or something like that. But yeah, right. That just went to nowhere because there's no service there. So far underground. Yeah. This is something, though, you can't stress enough. If you're going to do this, you need to take enough batteries for all of your electronics, all of your lights. You need to make sure you have backups on backups for lights because our headlamps started to go out. I was trying to conserve as much battery power on my phone flashlight as I could. We had a couple tiny flashlights, but there was times where we just tried to sit in the dark because I was so afraid we were just going to run out of light. But as you sit in that dark, 
it's so dark and and the water goes through there and you constantly think that you're you're hearing voices just because the water trickles over the rocks just right to where it sounds like people talking in the background. And so then you turn your light back on and you're just wasting all of this battery. And by the end, search and rescue had to give us more batteries because our lights were so dim. My name is Philip Fox and I joined Teton County Search and Rescue in 2015. I've also been a member of Teton County, Idaho Search and Rescue. I joined that team in uh, 2005. The cave is very close to the Idaho side. Um, So I've actually done some training with the Idaho team uh, going into the ice cave, uh, going over to the first drop and looking at it, and then also going in from the wind side and looking at that first drop. Um, The incident commander for this event was um, Anthony Stevens, and I believe I received a call from him around 7.20 asking if I could go up to the uh, parking lot and uh, locate a vehicle. So the Darby parking lot is pretty close to my house. And when I got up there, there was only three vehicles. None of the vehicles uh, matched uh, Spencer's truck description. So I radioed back to Incident Command, uh, letting them know that uh, the truck wasn't there. And, you know, I thought, hey, maybe they made it out. And, uh, you know, they're driving out of the canyon. There's no cell reception yet. And they're going to call 911 or family members to let them know that they made it out. Probably 10 minutes had passed. And then uh, Anthony uh, called me back on the radio to uh, give me Jessica's car description. And I found that one pretty quick, you know. And so then I just started talking to people in the parking lot um, that were getting ready to go hike, who were going up to the uh, wind cave for the day, and asked the public that were going for the hiking that day just to uh, keep a lookout for these two individuals. And if you see anything, to uh, contact 911. We have a cave plan. Uh, we break into two teams, like uh, one team goes to the wind side and another team goes to the ice side. Protocol is for uh, both teams to kind of go in. And then uh, we do an initial look. Um, we go to the edge of where the rappels are. We take a look. We holler. We look to see if anyone's there. And then uh, we back back out um, because obviously once you enter the cave, there's no communications, radio communications, cell phone communications. So we have no way to contact incident command and let them know what we'd found. I probably was still in bed thinking about walking the dogs and my phone went off and I looked at it. You know, it's at least a 12-hour day and maybe a 24-hour day. I took a few minutes to think about what, what I needed to do to, to get together on that. And we kind of go through as a team, uh, just making sure that we're checking each other as we set up the rappels and everything like that, just to make sure, you know, we want to be really safe. Um, so we're always backing each other up, looking at everything. And then once we got the uh, go ahead to do the through trip, then uh, it was decided that the four of us would go all the way through. The first clue that we found was on the 50 foot ice drop. I was the first one to go over and uh, I was shining my light down at the bottom just kind of looking for any clues or evidence of people there and noticed that there was a small backpack um, that was on an ice bulge. And so Ed um, was the third person to come down the, the the rappel. Ed was small enough or light enough that I was able to swing him on the rope uh, to get him to the top of the bulge to uh, where that uh, pack was that I saw when I first rappelled down. So that was kind of our first clue. That was my backpack. Actually, it wasn't a full pack. It was uh, just a little waterproof pack. At one point, we knew that we we're going to get a little wet. So I wanted to bring this little extra small pack that I can kind of put in my pocket to get in the water. And and if I wanted to keep something dry, put it in there and kind of shimmy through. Um, that actually came off as we were going the that first rappel. It came off and kind of we kind of tried to toss it down to match where the rope was, but that just drifted off. And we, we couldn't get climbing back up to grab it. So we were like, well, there it goes. And so I guess that's the first thing they saw. We talked a lot, a lot about uh, the first squeeze um, after you do the rappel off the ice bulge. And um, I think that's kind of one thing to point out is, you know, as a, as a hasty SAR team, being the first team through, like we can't carry a lot of gear. We want to be fast. We want to be efficient to search the cave. And because of the tight squeezes, we, we carry pretty minimal gear. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we have the proper equipment to climb and everything like that and to do the rescue. But uh, 
you know, we can't carry a lot of extra food and water and clothing and things like that. So uh, we all have small packs um, with the basic essentials. And then we kind of divided up between team members. I was the medical lead for the day. And so I had the, the larger first aid kit and things like that. And so the rest of the team divvies up climbing gear, food, water, and clothing. So we all have enough to support ourselves, but then also complete the rescue and have enough for our patients. Did the squeeze, pushing all our gear through and everything like that. And the protocol is to kind of quickly search all the other areas. Um, like Spencer said, uh, the cave breaks off in multiple directions. And so we try to stay on the main path and search that first but we'll quickly break off. Two people will go down one tunnel, you know, and another two will either stay in one location and wait for their team members to come back or we'll kind of split up a little bit and do a quick hasty search and then uh, kind of come back to the main route and uh, continue on. There was a smell. I think we noticed it probably, I don't know, a quarter of the way through, something burnt and we couldn't quite figure out what it was. And, you know, we kept asking ourselves, like, what is the smell? So that was kind of another clue that we got. Those packs have a distinct smell when they burn. It's not a good one. Plastic. It's stuck in our hands for weeks afterwards. With no stops, it takes us five and a half hours to get through. And we know most likely where people are going to be located, and it's, you know, two-thirds of the way through. And so we we try not to spend too much time. Um, We really can't probe every side channel and every side uh, hold on the way down. And so there's lots of yelling, but most of it, you're kind of trying to move quickly and split the difference. Like, well, if they've been down here long enough, hopefully they're sitting, you know, pretty close to the the route. It's always in the back of your mind, like, oh man, I hope I just didn't go past them. Yeah. We were scared of that too, because we were off a little ways. You were off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We kind of continued on the main route and um, kind of right before we got to uh, Crotch Lake, we just, you know, started yelling the name, uh, their names as we do all the way through the cave. And uh, we heard a faint response. Um, there's obviously the water and everything coming through there. I think they heard us or they saw our lights. Jessica and Spencer started screaming. You know, I kind of like, I was like, was that really someone? Or is that just the water playing tricks yeah. on my mind? They started screaming louder. And uh, then we kind of realized that they weren't on the main trail. And, you know, we had to go off the main trail a little ways to, to find them up to the right above Crotch Lake. Um, I was second. I think I was right behind Galen. And uh, I remember right where we were. And Galen's the big guy, and he has this deep voice, and it carries. And so uh, we couldn't see him or anything, but we could definitely hear him. And it sounded very clear, but they were quite animated. And I was concerned that they were going to do something because I didn't know where they were. But we were, I was like, stay where you are. We're coming. I don't want them doing something rash. Jumping off. <laughs> yeah, like jumping or running. Like we don't need anyone running to us and breaking an ankle or something. Yeah. Stay well, where you are. The problem at that point is, like I said earlier, the water, you hear, you hear people down there, and there's no one down there. It's just the way the water flows over the rocks. When we did hear them calling, we didn't know if it was just the water we were hearing again or if it was actual people. So yes, we were very excited when we found out it was real people yelling for us, not just the water. We even took a couple seconds to just hold still and listen really closely to make sure we were actually hearing somebody once we realized that somebody was actually down there, yeah, we <laughs> adrenaline rush. We were freaking out. I was hitting the alarm on my walkie-talkie. We were just whenever we could to get somebody there. And then we, all of a sudden we saw the lights start flashing. And we It was excitement from there. Well, and that was 6 p.m. too the next day. Yeah. That's was, a lot of hours. Yeah. Like when I heard that you had spent 12 hours, you know, before you got to that stopping point, mm-hmm. you had to have been really tired, really cold just when you got to the stopping mm-hmm. point before you'd even gone up. But this, we also had our guard down. You know, we, it's a fun trip for us. And 
until the you know game is on um it's a through trip right until somebody we find somebody and so it's fun and we're having fun having a conversation and we were not expecting to make contact at that location and we were pretty surprised like huh wonder what's going on yeah and you guys made it so much fun on the way out it was a lot of fun we really wish we would have taken more people like you guys with us on that trip because it was so much more lighthearted on the way out than it was the way in <laughs> It's pretty lonely with just two people, and especially when you turn a light out. Like four, yeah. I like four people at least. You know, four or five, you get a little energy. Two people is a little yeah. lonely, especially uh, if one person's energy's down. Oh yeah, we, I had good company. That's the dialogue that we were talking about before. It's so important to continuously try to lighten the mood. You understand you're in a tight spot, but saying it out loud doesn't really help much. You know, so trying to say something positive, trying to giggle, tell a joke, or just. Because one thing I kept saying over and over again was, man, this cave is so cold, but remember, it's it's summer outside. It's nice and warm. We just need to get the heck out of here. We said that over and over again. Just those positive thoughts and saying, hey, it's okay. A lot of I love yous, that kind of thing. People always ask us, you know, did you think about dying or did you think about your daughter nonstop? But people don't understand how the brain just kind of shuts off and turns on survival mode. The scariest part we got to was when we were coming down at the end, right when search and rescue found us. That's when we knew we didn't have a way out and we had burned almost everything we had and we were soaked. And so we were sitting in the dark there for a while, but then we realized we were shivering way, way too much. We have no energy and we don't know if search and rescue is going to get to us in time because now we're feeling such a depletion of energy. Our bodies are cramping up. We're feeling that we're running out of time. And we didn't know how many hours it was going to take for somebody to get to us and if they were going to reach us in time. That was a real a real thing that started presenting itself to us, that we're going to run out of time because the, the longer we sit here, the colder we get. Um, so I remember we sat up, and we didn't have anything really else to burn except for Jess's backpack. We didn't want to burn that yet. We had a couple helmets, and we were thinking, that's going to really stink if we have to burn those. <laughs> but we need those in case we have to get into some tight spots and get into some dangerous situations. We have a rope that's soaking wet. We both sat up and decided, I think we're running out of time. We need to get out of here. So we need to do something different than what we've done before. We had tried lead climbing up that cliff. We would tried everything we possibly could to get the heck out of there. So... We gathered all of our gear up and went back over to those ropes. And we both started talking. Let's think of different ways we can get up this thing because that's the only way out. We even went back over the water just to make sure we didn't miss a clue. We didn't miss some trash. We didn't miss something that could direct us through the water. So we kind of took another roundabout idea of looking around the place to see if there's another way out. And I had some other carabiners and whatnot. So what we ended up doing is making a pulley system out of all the different ropes. I attached Jessica up onto the green ropes. I lifted her up, and she attached herself on there, and we used the other yellow rope that was dangling there. And what she did is she took the rope and tied it into a slip knot and clipped in a carabiner on that, stood up on there, and she pulled herself up and tightened up the the rappel to kind of put herself into a lock position to be able to shimmy up this thing. And that started working. And even though she was doing it, she was twisting and spinning around and falling and going more into this waterfall so that we knew that we were risking everything. We knew at this point this is all or nothing because we're entering water again. So there goes our heat, there goes our energy. 
if this doesn't work, we need to hunker down, hold still, and hope that we can make it. And Jess finally gets up past the lead climb spot and just basically reaches up and pulls herself up through the hole. And we and she gets up there and completely depleted. I could hear her breathing really heavy, just having just completely wiped out. I shimmied up that thing pretty dang quick. I was still spinning around, but that was really difficult. And mm -hmm. so we both get up there and we are just wiped out. I mean, we were both breathing really heavy and really concerned. And you you squeeze through a tiny little hole that's maybe let's say three foot by two and a half feet. You get through this hole and you're sitting there looking around and you see a waterfall that's coming down maybe four feet away from you that's trickling out of the hole you just crawled up into. From what I recall, that <clears throat> that room was probably about uh, twenty by twenty, and there was a big rock bulge right in the middle of it, mm -hmm. and then uh, water pouring down over that rock bulge. Yeah. It was raining in there basically the whole time. Like that's why Spencer had to hurry up that spot. I was just up there getting soaked and I was just basically freezing to death up there. So he really hurried to get up there. But then at this point it, it goes nowhere but up into a tiny slit. Basically you have to really squeeze your way through there and it's all this mud and shells mixed together that makes your handholds, what we thought was handholds, but it turns out no one's ever really gone up in there where we were. That's I mean, not somebody's <laughs> got to been up there, but yeah. I mean, it's obviously not well tracked. You're in this 20 by 20, like he described, but it just goes straight up, but it slowly gets smaller and smaller as you're climbing. Because of the size, we decide that, you know, let's keep this going. I'm going to have Jess climb up first because it obviously looks like it's really narrow. We just want to see where the exit is as we're going to climb straight up. But there's no rock climbing bolts. There's no way to really use the rock climbing equipment because we didn't have any cams. We didn't have any wedges or anything like that to be able to use to really help with this. And so what we were, we decided as we're freezing, shivering in the water was that we're just going to get a lay of the climb. We're going to have Jess climb up first a little ways and see if it goes anywhere. And if it opens up, we're going to progress and we're going to keep on going. As we made that decision, Jess climbs up on that um, rock bowl. It's sitting right there and she starts, you know, doing a little Spider-Man crawl where you put one leg on one side of the wall, one leg on the other. Each outcrop that she put her hand on started seeming like it was really unstable. Um, but she started putting enough pressure on. I saw her climbing up that she started getting really confident, started moving really good. Sees a bigger outcrop. So she grabs onto this outcrop as a really good handhold and the whole thing breaks away. It's all seashell and mud that has just been there over so much time that I think it hardened up over just time and it broke away from the wall and just started falling. She was probably about 15, 20 feet in the air in this little spot. So she fell, she hit her rib and her side against the other side of the wall. And as she's tumbling down, she's heading straight for that hole that we just crawled up into. So I jumped over and luckily enough caught her. We yanked back against the wall and try to catch our composer from that. Adrenaline really caught me. I, I didn't feel anything until I was back down and standing on my own, and I felt that my rib uh, kind of hurt a little bit, and it hurt to inhale. In the end, it ended up being my hands that were bad. They were really cut up. My fingertips were <laughs> super sliced. And, and then we decided I was going to be the one that was going to climb up from that. Spencer got all the way to the top into this tiny little slit, mm. and it didn't go up anymore. <laughs> And it didn't go out. So I got to a spot where I didn't think I could fit anymore. I looked up and saw that it looked as if it, it opened up a little bit more. So I was bound and determined. I was like, if I can get through here, Jess can get through here. We're going to get out. And I just thought we were going to climb our way out. We're going to get somewhere. 
Um, because, hey, there's water coming out. Maybe we'll get lucky. I did see a spot that opened up further, so I took my helmet off and I put my arms straight up and wedged myself up through it, even scratched my chest up and my back up because I was squeezing so tiny in this tiny little wedge. Got up there and, and it did open up for a little bit, but it opened up to another landing of the waterfall. The waterfall came through, landed on some rocks, and went right back down into the hole or into the crevice. As I went over to that, where the waterfall was, I looked up and it's coming out of a tiny little slit in the rock and there was no more room to escape. That was hours and hours after being in this room anywhere, anyway, just being rained on and being soaked. That's mm. when I was really upset. That's when I started getting almost angry because we literally were going over every clue and we were expending every amount of energy and this was our last shot. This is our last ditch effort to do whatever we could to get out of there. Once I hit that top point, you know, Jess started following me up and I said, hey, I'm sorry, it's going nowhere. There's nowhere to go. And we we're both so soaked. And I said, okay, let's climb back down. Let's go back into our little base camp that we had before and let's burn something else. Basically hanging over 80 feet of just nothingness and sharp rock. So where you both decided, let's get the heck down back to where the hole was that we shimmied up through. That's when we heard them is when we were almost back down. Got to the rock outcrop where I caught Jess when she fell at first. Thought we heard voices. And so we both held real still, held our breath even, which was really difficult. <laughs> we also <laughs> knew hypothermia was kicking in at this point. So it was kind of hard to know that we were hearing real voices. We were so cold and we knew there was no way out at this point. That was the only spot where our minds kind of gave up a little bit. I wouldn't say we fully gave up. We didn't ever give up, but that was the point we were actually scared. We knew it was going to be really hard to warm up at that point. So hearing their voices, obviously, we were really excited. Heard them yelling for search and rescue, and uh, we kind of located them. I think all four of us on SAR uh, we were kind of uh, assessing the situation and just trying to get where they were, look at our surroundings, make sure everything was safe for us. And then the big question is, how are we going to climb up to reach them? Kind of had a quick discussion of, you know, I wish we had some additional gear, cams and stuff like that to be able to protect the climb up. I was looking at the rope that was dangling down from where they were, and it was kind of slung over a horn, and I was a little worried about it slipping off. Like, I didn't know how secure it was. I think there was webbing that was around the horn and then there was a, a ring and then the rope was running through that and I, I didn't know what the security was of it. I was really worried about them being hypothermic, being cold and you know I, di I didn't want them to try to repel off um, and it was actually a distance away from them from what I remember. Um, it was probably a good five to ten feet kind of below uh, the hole. Really no safe way for them to reach the rope and then being able to uh, repel down and Obviously, if it was, they probably would have repelled out of there previously. I think, Ed, you might have done a quick search to see if there was another route. It was kind of quickly determined that the only way to, to be able to reach them was going to be able to ascend this rope. I have a previous uh, climbing experience and had brought a pair of ascenders with me, and so kind of made the decision that um, I would go out, climb up there, um, evaluate them, and try to figure out you know, how we were going to get them down. So we tried to be as safe as possible. Um, I had Galen uh, spotting me and kind of holding the rope um, so I wouldn't spin around. Uh, attached myself to the rope and then climbed up. And then once I got up to the top, about five or 10 feet that I was going to have to free climb to get over to their location. I left myself attached to the rope and then had Galen let go of it. Um, so I would be attached to something to, you know, hopefully break my fall if I did fall. And I uh, was able to, you know, after resting for a minute, evaluating the situation, just kind of let go of the rope and then started to climb over to them. And 
was able to pull myself over to them and then uh, was kind of just evaluating the situation and you know I was like man how long have they been here you know there was it was a small room there was water dripping in there there was just no dry spot and you know I was really worried about them being severely hypothermic and um, until I heard, heard the their side of the story I didn't realize that they had been climbing and trying to uh, climb out of that room I had the team members down below uh, hook up a bag and so we pulled up some food, water, um, heating pads, and things like that. Gave that to these guys so they could start warming up uh, with the heat pads and try to get some food and water on board. I think uh, they looked really relieved to see us. I don't think I can ever explain the amount of excitement that I had seeing them. I let all my worries go. And I'm so sorry that we didn't help you put that rope around the rock to make an anchor. We were so cold and I was just frozen. That's when I finally let my guard down enough to feel how cold I actually was. As he climbed up and he was getting off that rope, as I was looking at it, I was like, if he, if he wouldn't climb up there with how cold my hands are and with how numb they were, I would actually have a very difficult, difficult time descending enough to use the rope for one, but also even grabbing onto the rock or even using my repelling equipment properly um, without being able to warm up. He brought up heat pads and some food. I don't know how successful we would have been climbing down there and, and repelling off that by ourselves. I think we could have done it, but I think it would have been, there could have been an accident, there could have been some injury had these guys not done what they did. Philip really went above and beyond and put himself in, in a little bit of, uh, of jeopardy both, and he did it without anyone nominating him. He self-nominated. He knew that among the four of us, he was the best person in terms of skills to do that climb. Spencer and Jessica, I don't know if they remember this, but they were getting a little agitated and they were excited, but they were a little agitated. And they also were so cold. And for them to talk to us, they had to stand under the cold shower. And so they could talk to us for a little while. And then they go, I, I got to go back in, into the room. They couldn't stand there and keep talking to us. And so we would use those moments to sort of, okay, look, we, we don't like that horn. We don't like that rope at all. And we don't like where it's situated. And whoever climbs that is going to have to free climb it through a 38 degree shower at the end for that last five or 10 feet. And that was actually the picture that circulated on, on the national news was Philip um, just about to put his face into that, into that shower. Mm-hmm. And we talked about getting a, a bolt gun. You know, that was the only way we could protect it. And we, that was an eight hour wait to get a bolt gun. And we knew that the team downstream from us didn't have a bolt gun and didn't have, there was no way to put any other pro in. And so this was the least of the worst options. That was the least worst option. They were really cold. What they kept saying over and over is, we're really cold. (laughs) There was a lot of discussion going on. We were trying to do it off the side so you couldn't hear us um, (laughs) because we didn't want to demoralize you, but we weren't sure initially that we were going to go up that rope. And what we ended up deciding was that a couple of us were going to get under Philip and just body block him if he fell because there was no way. We were concerned that when he climbed sideways, that if he, you know, this is a wet underhung climb into this essentially a little pool. And that if he slipped, he was going to swing back pendulum and that the rope could have either come off the horn or the horn could have kind of gave way. And uh, he wasn't going to die, but but he was going to break his leg if he fell from, up, you know, that was 20, 25 feet in the air. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were pretty concerned. It wasn't a good situation. We're really glad that you didn't try to climb out of that hole because when we talked about it, we're like, we don't want them climbing out. They're going to, they're going to reach, they're going to fall. It was a very serious environment at that point. Once I got up there, did a quick patient assessment to make sure that they were coherent. And um, kind of once I knew that they were okay and, you know, started warming them up and kind of went into the process of, you know, now how are we going to get out of here? You know, I couldn't see 
what was up there. I had kind of minimal gear with me. And luckily, I was able to use their climbing rope. Luckily, they hadn't burned it yet. <laughs> and uh, I was able to use that to uh, to build an anchor. And uh, so it took me a couple of minutes, you know, uh, evaluating them and kind of looking at the scene and trying to figure out, you know, how are, how exactly are we going to get out of here? Came to the conclusion that I could uh, use their climbing rope and uh, sling this giant bulge of rock that was up there. And that's what we were going to use for an anchor. Got them out of the way um, and kind of into a dry spot so they could continue eating and warming up. And then I uh, kind of went to work on building this anchor. It was a 50 meter rope that I had. So that's a lot of rope and it's really heavy. I had a really thick rope. First off, it's all tangled up because we just went through hell and back up and down. <laughs> so he had to unravel that. But um, the outcrop of rock that we discussed earlier, he basically just lassoed this thing over and over and over. He, he circled it and tied it off in multiple different ways to make sure that that was actually going to hold on the rock itself. Was able to pull up an additional rope uh, that we had with us. Built the anchor and then uh, kind of got everything set up for them, uh, ready to repel and just kind of evaluated them one more time because, you know, repelling can definitely be dangerous and uh, we want to make it as safe as possible. Checked their harnesses, helmets, everything like that. Got them prepped, got their ATCs attached to the rope. Galen and the team at the bottom uh, set up a fireman's belay just in case they did slip or something like that. We could we could stop them and Spencer went first, mm-hmm. safely got him down and then uh, Jessica went next. I was the last one to kind of come out of there. They did really well at hearing some not good news because as soon as they got down, essentially they had stepped into a 38 degree shower when they rappelled over that edge. So they were now colder. And then Galen told them, well, look, we have dry clothes for you, but we're not going to give them to you. (laughs) You're going to have to go wade up to your chest and get wet, and then we'll give you dry clothes. And they were both really rock stars. They're like, great, let's do it. (laughs) We just wanted out at that point. I put full trust in you guys. Our clothes were wet anyway. We said, ah, heck, well, let's go swimming through some glacier water. That's fine. We've already been in it. (laughs) Get out of here. And that's exactly the attitude I remember is you guys were total game. And I was like, wow, they're doing a lot better than I expected. (laughs) Crotch Lake is about three feet deep, but the issue is that the ceiling, What I got what you were trying to describe, Spencer, is that the ceiling gets low. And so you have to actually bend over and you can't wear your pack. So you're holding your pack in front of you, bending your chest forward. So the water gets um, up to your chest, at least for me because you're bent over and you're trying to keep your pack out of the water and the ceiling gets really low. And it happens pretty quick. So I can also understand, especially if they thought they had gone through Crotch Lake, that you can't tell how deep it is. And in the creek bed they'd gone through before, there's several potholes where if you went into, they would be you know, neck deep, if not deeper. And so it's very intimidating to go into that water that's dark. You, know, you don't know if you're gonna step off into a 10 footer or something. But yeah, we had decided that we were going to um, split the team up. Two guys were going to take Spencer and Jessica forward through, and then I stayed behind. I, and Philip and I cleaned up and got the gear out. And so that way we could keep them moving, try and keep the the you know the mental energy going. And we, we figured we'd catch up to them. We didn't want to tell them that the, you know, the next rappel is actually one of the biggest ones, and it's probably the second coldest one because there is a giant waterfall, and it's, it's really, really cold in that room. And that's where uh, we said, okay, we're going to turn around. Here's your dry clothes. Do what you got to do. Let us know when you're done. And that room, I mean, it's probably 33, 34 degrees and 100% humidity. It's it's a brutal place to change clothes. And they, again, there was no pushback. They were like, okay, we got it. I remember in Crotch Lake, the water started to get warm. I just kind of wanted to sit in the water. It was so cold that it was warm. (laughs) I was so numb. That's hypothermia. That's just what that is. And you, if you get to the point where you're so cold that you start feeling warm, that is a big, a big sign that we got to change the situation. 
these guys very respectful just turn around let us you know strip down get into some dry clothes they were moving well they were move there you know our our thing is at that point now they're in our care and so we have to be really careful and so they were really wanted to get out and we're like okay slow it down <laughs> like make sure that you know your harness is double back make sure that your uh you know your atc is is threaded correctly and and all these you know because they they were really motivated to get out and and you know they took it well but at that point there's it's still two and a half hours it's not you're not close to the end and, and there's a lot more work just physical work to get out from there but they were moving well in fact i was thinking we they should eat more <laughs> we got out of crotch lake and my thighs started cramping up on me really bad they, they both started cramping really really bad had a hard time walking so they actually told me here sit down drink some more water eat some more food we did that right before we actually got out to where we're going to change clothes. And once I ate some food, drank some water, my legs got better and felt better. And once we went off that big, gorgeous rappel, that waterfall was beautiful in there, by the way. And yeah, it took a couple more hours, but we ju- we, we knew that we were on our the, the correct location. We knew we were going the right way. And from being stuck, not knowing where the right way was, that was just a relief by itself. So just moving toward an end goal was relieving. I would say as a team, I think we worked really well and efficient together. Um, we kind of broke up into two teams and, uh, you know, like one team would go ahead and start setting up the repel and then we repel and then two people would take Jessica and Spencer forward while two people stayed behind and started cleaning up the, the repel and things like that. So I think we moved pretty efficiently, like once we got going. 8.30, I remember it was 8.30, the sun was setting and we realized we had been in there like two whole days. It was two whole days later. Mm-hmm. I think we calculated it as like 33 hours or something like that, that we were in the cave. I can't remember the exact. But it was your birthday. And we walked out still on your birthday. They were adrenaline pumped and they were positive energy, but we were in the background like uh, Spencer's really trying to man out, man up on this, but he was limping. And so we knew that he was struggling. Jessica had told us about her ribs and told us that she hit her head, but was saying it was fine. So we were both still, we were, all of us were still concerned. I'm sure Philip as medical lead was more concerned, but we were, we were keeping an eye on them a lot because they'd been through a lot. And it wasn't just a yellow road, you know, the yellow brick road out. These guys had to work for it, and they did. We we burnt pretty much anything that we could expend. And, uh, yeah, I took my knee brace off and burnt that along with the backpack at one point. And there was even the frame, the little metal frame of the knee brace. And we let that we let that metal warm up, and we put that in our gloves to heat our hands a little bit to kind of – we, we tried to do everything. We used pretty much anything we possibly could to – get warm so yeah i burnt the knee brace and you know my knee is not some terrible disaster but it, it is weak when i am too active hiking climbing and whatnot it, it it gets weak so it was definitely really weak as we were climbing out of there and hiking out of there and that probably led a little bit to me slowing down but honestly he's got a point my feet were really hurting my legs were really hurting and i was wiped i was wiped out there was even a time when our lighter my lighter was getting pretty wet and making the fire and so it just made this little tiny little blue flame, and I thought for sure we were going to be out of fire. And it was, we had just a little clump of garbage that we were going to burn. And so Jess ran her hair through her hand through her hair, pulled out some, and stuck it right in that little blue flame. Got enough spark going on to get us a, another fire built. When we came out of the cave, our other team uh, that was going in to search the area called the Maze, um, their backpacks were right outside the wind cave, and so I was able to rummaged through the team's backpacks and found a radio, um, was able to call back to incident command. And I was worried about um, Spencer and 
kind of how slow that he was going to move. And, you know, once you exit the cave, you still have five to seven miles of kind of rough terrain that you have to hike out with switchbacks and creek crossings and things like that. So I kind of called down to uh, incident command. And, you know, at first I was thinking, you know, maybe we need to bring the wheeled litter up here and uh, use the wheeled litter to bring Spencer out. And I knew how difficult that was going to be from having to do wheeled litters before. And uh, luckily we had a couple of team members who brought horses over to help shuttle gear. Plan was is to bring up a couple horses and they were going to bring a, additional food and stuff like that. And uh, we were going to rendezvous probably about a mile um, in this big open area. And uh, that's where we uh, we hiked down. We were moving pretty slowly, just making sure um, Spence and Jess were okay. And then uh, we got to that landing and the horse team made it there about the same time. And I believe it was Spencer, your, was it your brother or friends were there? and Our brothers. Yeah, yeah. brothers and, and met us there as well. And um, the horse team brought us an amazing amount of food, mm-hmm. food and water and sandwiches <laughs> and stuff like that. So uh, we all kind of sat down and had a quick meal. And then towards the end of that, before we were getting ready to go, I think there was probably like 25 of us up there. And we all sang happy birthday to Spencer in the dark. It was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yep, All by headlamps. And that, that was great to hear. I was embarrassed. But at the same time, it was really cool. Nicholas Christiansen and Ben Christiansen, they're both my older brothers. They're beasts, and they're bigger than I am, too, so I don't know if they would have wanted to climb through that cave. And they're going to give me a hard time for the next 10 years, most likely. Yeah, and that's, that's I guess, the right thing to do. So when we got to the trailhead, um, you know, the team got to the trailhead. Philip was already there. Your brothers were there. They were like, put us to work. Tell us what to do. And we're like, okay, you got packs? And they're like, yep. I'm like, go get them. Get over here. <laughs> And so they humped a bunch of gear up and uh, they started out ahead of us and, and they were, you know, they're, they're super big guys, you know, they're probably twice my size. And then, uh, and so we just gave them a bunch of gear and they grunted it up there. It was great. They're super helpful. Mm. And then they looked at us gearing up and they're like, yeah, we don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> but there is one, you know, I don't know if you guys knew this, but there was another piece of this. Um, so on the way out, um, we went through the section called the maze and our, we had another team in there, another hasty team of four or five people. And they had hung uh, streamers that said, you know, Jessica and Spencer, wait here. And on one of them, it also said, hasty team, wait here. Um, we are in the maze. And so that was a concern because, A, we weren't going to wait. And, B, it was really late in the day for them to still be in the maze. You know, we did the math in our head on the time. And we were like, they should have cleared most of the maze right by now. or Either they're really deep or something happened. And so we probed just maybe 100 feet, 50 feet, and yelled, and we couldn't make contact. We left notes that said, hey, you know, 7.30, you know, hasty one, we're on our way out, head, you know, head out, all we have Spencer and Jessica. And so we got out to the um, entrance, and, and Philip clearly was the right person to stay with Spencer and Jessica. And so I was thinking, well, I, one of us were ready to go back in. We, of course, can't make that call. That's a incident command call, but we let them know that, you know, we were aware and we were ready to go back in. I was really happy when Hasty 2 came out, really happy, both for them and it, it was going to be, uh, you know, another emotional like ramp up to get up and put the energy to get back in there. You know, it's another hour and a half back in. And, uh, and so it was it, like, we, you know, that wasn't something that you guys were supposed to know about, but at the time, obviously, but that was a concern at that point that, okay, now, now we got to make sure we get all of our team out. So, I mean, these guys just crazy cool and just the amount of effort and what they went through to, to save us was just overwhelming. It's just really cool. And then to have them sit around and sing happy birthday to me and let us have a good time after we got out of there, they just way too amazing to see people that will go above and beyond like that. 
It was about three weeks of me looking up information about this cave. I was online. I was in uh, sports stores. I was, I called over the county. I mean, it, the thing that was really that I learned most about it is that if there's not enough information, there might be a reason why. But also, you know, there's been many times when there hasn't been a map of a cave that I've gone through. There's been plenty of times where there's not a perfect trail map and you kind of have to, you know, figure it out. And so when we see something that is, it's only a mile hike or so, and you, you have as much information as you possibly can leading all to the same conclusions, it, it was very difficult that way. But the lessons are still the same. If you don't know, you don't know. You should figure out first. And that's a hard thing that I had to kind of deal with because I just wanted to have a good day adventure. It wasn't going to be, it wasn't supposed to be anything crazy. You know, and so I, and if it was crazy, we would have had more equipment. And if we, if we would have known it was such a big adventure, we would have prepared for it. That's the thing. And so that's one, that's one thing I'm frustrated with still, but at the same time, I do understand the reasoning of not having that, that much information available because you can get random people who aren't prepared or who, who are not experienced in the ways of climbing or adventure that way to get themselves in even a worse situation. So I can understand both angles of it. It's still pretty frustrating to me because if had I had the correct information or had access to the correct information, I would have or we would have made very, very different decisions in the cave or even going to the cave. We probably wouldn't have gone had I known it was that big. We would have waited and planned and then got a guide. Got a guide most likely is what our decisions would have led to had we known what really was to be expected. Forcing yourself to stay calm is really difficult in those situations, but if you're stuck by yourself even in a situation, even if it's not a cave or if it's just out, if you're just lost or something, having a positive reinforcement, always saying something and thinking something positive, always assuming that you're going to escape somehow, it will keep your feet moving. It'll keep you going. It'll keep you looking for the next clue, looking for the next thing that you can use to get you out of the out of the situation that you're in. Because no matter what reason you're in the situation, you know, saying, whoops, shouldn't have done that doesn't help while you're in there. Whenever we do a rescue, we always get the background, you know, who are they, you know, are they experienced, they have medical, why are they here? So we were told this is Spencer's birthday and he wants an adventure and he took his wife and we're like, oh man, he is in so much trouble. (laughs) And so um, to Jessica's credit, not one harsh word did I hear in the seven or eight hours that we spent together, even from his brothers, he just took it. You know, you could tell they have that bond and you could tell that that positive attitude carried them through a very difficult time, you know, very serious and very difficult time. So I totally agree with, uh, can connect with what Spencer was saying and Jessica was nodding her heads about that, that, you know, earlier when Jessica was saying we're positive people and we, you know, we see that we're going to get through this. They totally live that. When we met them, they were, they were hypothermic enough that not everything made total sense. It made a lot more sense after hearing this about why they went up the rope. And how they thought that they were at what we call the pit, and they thought that was the climb up. That made way more sense. You guys should know that before you went in there, our team and myself personally have been trying. We know that the cave is, it's a risk and reward problem, right? People want to take the risk, but don't understand what the really what the risks are and don't have enough information. We've been working with Backcountry Zero, and, and we've been having internal discussions about how do we make the cave safer. And that involves a lot of things like education and about... What happens with the map? You know, how does that get handled? And what about access? 
And it's a very complicated situation. Unfortunately, Search and Rescue is a rescue organization. We don't control access to the cave. We don't want to manage access to the cave. In some areas of the country, if this cave existed, it would be locked. <clears throat> but there would also be a local grotto, a caving club. And then if you join the local caving club, spend enough time with them, they would normally what they do is give you the map and give you the key once they feel you have a, a group has experience. And that system, because of where we are regionally, doesn't exist. Closest grottos are in Bozeman, Pocatello, and Casper. And so there is no grotto in Jackson or Idaho Falls. And so the cave is sort of just because we're geographically remote in a little different environment. And so I am working and the team in Backcountry Zero are working to try and make it safer. As Spencer said so well, it's hard. If you just give the map out, are we going to put more people in there who shouldn't be in there? You know, I took it seriously when on the way out, Spencer said, I spent a month researching this and, and he, you know, confirmed that in our talk today. He really did try hard. There isn't a lot of info out there and some of it, particularly on YouTube, is really bad. It's not an easy answer no matter what you do. It's just a beautiful thing to do, but yet, yeah, you got to know what you're in for. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.